Hi there, Sam Brazil here, Medusa in English's senior news editor. If you're a regular listener of The Naked Pravda, you know that we usually bring you interviews with highly qualified guests about the latest news and research on Russia and its neighbors. But today we decided, hey, why should we let the experts do all the talking? So in a special holiday departure from our usual coverage of Russian politics and news, my colleague Ned Garvey and I are going to chat a little about our personal experiences in Russia, how we spent our time there, what we found surprising there as Americans, and what still stands out in our memories of the country. If you're looking for predictions about Russia's political future or nuanced assessments of the invasion of Ukraine, this probably isn't the episode for you. But if you haven't spent much time in Russia, or if you are Russian and you're curious about what it was like for two Americans to live there for a few years, then stick around. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. So my name is Sam Brazil. I'm Medusa in English's senior news editor, and I'm currently in Riga, Latvia. Hi, I'm Ned Garvey. I am Medusa's social media editor, and I am coming to you from Berlin, Germany. So, Ned, I understand you also spent some time in Russia. That's true. First, I wonder if you could tell me how you first got interested in Russia, why you decided to go there. How did it all start for you? I don't know. It started kind of randomly, to be honest. When I, I went to the University of Vermont, and when I was choosing my classes, they told me that I needed to choose a language in addition to whatever other classes I wanted to take. And throughout high school and middle school and even a little bit of elementary school, I studied Latin and it, it really just wasn't for me. So I thought like, I'm going to take a language that's like not even remotely similar. And I just kind of randomly chose Russian. And then I also decided to take some Russian history, Russian politics courses, and it just kind of snowballed into them asking me like, hey, would you also like to study abroad in Russia? And I did. And it just kind of kept going and going. And here I am now working at Medusa. And what about you, Sam? I didn't major in Russian, actually. I guess I got into Russian literature in high school. Now I, you know, don't remember a thing about Russian literature. It's not my main interest. But then in college, my second year of college, I thought it would be fun sort of as a hobby to sign up for Russian language classes. I ended up studying abroad in St. Petersburg. And then my major was public health, which I didn't really find very interesting. So when it was getting to be time to graduate, I applied to jobs in Russia and spent my first two years out of college there. Where did you move to in Russia? Where did you live? So I first studied abroad in St. Petersburg, but I really wanted to learn Russian. That was my goal. And everybody there at least thought they could speak English or wanted to practice. I wanted to go somewhere where there was no chance of that. So I went to Vladimir, which is like 100 or so miles east of Moscow. What about you? So I studied abroad and lived in St. Petersburg as kind of like a, a compromise with my parents who were pretty against me going to Russia in the first place. What, were they afraid? Yeah, I think they just had, you know, like the kind of stereotypical perception of of what Russia is supposed to be dark and gray and scary and, and whatever. And so I wanted to go to Moscow to study, but they were very against it. So we compromised and I ended up going to St. Petersburg instead, which is probably a, a good choice. I think they just felt more comfortable that it was one, a more like European looking city, if we're talking about the center. And two, it's, you know, right on the border with Finland. So I guess in their mind, it was a, an easy escape or a quick, a quick route out of the country. What were you doing for most of the time that you were in Russia? I studied abroad there from January to August 2014, which is, yeah, definitely a strange and interesting time to be there during the, you know, the annexation of Crimea, 
the Winter Olympics, the downing of MH17. So I got to to experience like a very, very weird time there. And then I also lived there from August 2015 until August 2017. So obviously the, the first time I went there was studying abroad. But when I came back for the extra two years, I was just teaching English at a, uh, at a school in the center of St. Petersburg. So did you enjoy it? Was it just a way to be in Russia for you? Because I, I initially, I was also teaching and I just kind of wanted a, a reason to be there. Yeah, I think it was the exact same for me. I After I studied abroad, I thought to myself, you know, what do I want to do when I graduate? And I knew that I would study for a master's eventually. So I thought, okay, I'll move to Russia and just, you know, have the experience of living there, being there and practice my Russian. So I also just before I left, I collected a bunch of cards from different English schools in the city. And as soon as I graduated, I just sent my my resume to a bunch of schools. And it was just a way for me to be there and to do it. Did you find that you liked teaching after you had done it for a little bit? To be honest, no. I, I can't say that I'm, I'm very passionate about teaching. I really enjoyed teaching teenagers. And I, I found that refreshing and a lot nicer than I thought it would be. But no, I, I can't say that I love teaching. And you? I think you're more extroverted than me. So that's a little bit of a surprise to me. I really loved it. It was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be at first. It was like 90 minute classes that you have to prepare for and you have to try to keep the students engaged. But I really liked it. I think because the teenagers were so earnest, you like learn so much about the low culture parts of Russia by hanging out with teenagers for 90 minutes at a time. Yeah, I mean, you definitely get those experiences. I mean, I love the teenagers for sure, because I learned a lot of slang. I learned about a lot of pop culture, a lot of just stuff that I wouldn't have any experience with otherwise. But also the adults, you're, you're right. I taught the daughter of a, a defense ministry official at one point in St. Petersburg. And, you know, her father would come in and watch our lessons sometimes. And he was this like, big, very imposing, you know, government official. And he was also trying to study English and his English was honestly quite poor. And you would see him just sitting there in the back of the room reading like a children's picture book or like a very small, you know, kind of funny young adult book in the back of the room. And it kind of really just gives them a perspective of like, oh, maybe this guy isn't so intimidating. Like he's reading a picture book in the back of this room. What did you do in your free time, like on a free weekend or a free evening? When you're in Russia. As anyone who works at Medusa knows, I spend most of my free time playing Ultimate Frisbee. And in, in Russia it was it was no different. Yeah, when I first arrived there to study abroad, I I went on Vkontaktia and I found a, a local team in St. Petersburg. And pretty much from my my first weekend in, in Russia, I was playing Ultimate Frisbee almost almost every weekend. So there was a team already? At the time in St. Petersburg, I think there were already four or five different teams. And yeah, I mean, most decently sized cities in Russia do have at least one or two teams. You know, Moscow, of course, has the most, but pretty much everywhere has has teams. And even like, I think my third weekend in Russia, I was already traveling to Vilkinovgorod to play in a, in a tournament. Oh, yeah, that's a great way to travel around and see different places. Yeah. In the beginning, it was it was weird because, you know, when I first got there, my Russian was quite bad. I could do pleasantries and and maybe I could have a basic conversation, but it definitely wasn't good enough to like really form some kind of bond with anybody. And most of the people that I played with really didn't speak much English at all beyond a couple basic phrases. So I would be put in this this big environment where there are, you know, like hundreds of people who just look at me and they know that they want to talk to me, right? They want to welcome me as a as a guest or whatever. But we just had a really tough time communicating beyond really basic phrases. But honestly, like playing 
playing ultimate more than anything else helped me to practice my Russian to get better at it just because there was no other option. I mean, I imagine in Vladimir, there's probably not not many people who have ever spoken English before. So what did you what did you spend your free time doing there? I really had this philosophy in Vladimir where I was going to kind of commit myself to, you know, say yes and like sign up for things in advance that I might regret the day of that I had to do. But just like force myself to speak Russian as much as possible. So I, I met this like teenager when I went to one of my students' like public schools. I worked in a private school. This kid had a band. I think he heard that I played the piano. So he like came up to me after I gave some kind of presentation and was like, Do you want to come like rehearse with our band, be in our band? So there were a few Saturdays where I met this 16 year old probably. And then the rest of the band was like two or three really sweaty middle aged men playing like this awful sort of like creed sounding music that kind of genre so stuff like that sort of absurd situations a lot did you ever have any encounters with russia's criminal underworld definitely a few when i when i first moved to st petersburg i mean i'm a i'm a soccer fan or a football fan and so you know i made a point to try to go to as many zenith games as i could Zenit is the St. Petersburg football club. Yeah, and some of my friends through Ultimate were big Zenit fans, so I, I could go with them. Um, but occasionally, you know, I, I would go by myself as well. And a couple times, I would be seated by people who would be quite interested in, in talking to me, right? Because they're season ticket holders, and you see somebody new in a seat, you want to find out who they are. And, you know, so we would exchange pleasantries and whatever, and of course they'd realize that I'm I'm a foreigner. And a few times... They would invite me, you know, to go out drinking with them or to meet them some other time after the game. And yeah, I agreed on a couple of occasions. And on one occasion, we went to a bar after the game and it was totally normal. It was just like this very nice guy from St. Petersburg. I don't remember what he did. And he invited me to watch the game with him at a bar the next weekend because it was an away game. And so I go to this bar and it's like a, a Zenith Ultras bar. And I, I very quickly kind of realized that it's you know, like the, the worst elements of the Zenith Ultras. It was, you know, people, skinheads, basically. And I understood like, okay, I, I need to leave here immediately. So I, I stayed and I watched, yeah, I watched the game until halftime. And then I realized like, okay, I, I need to make some kind of excuse. Like I'm going to go out and have a cigarette and then just leave. I just left and I, I never answered the guy's messages again. Yeah, that's probably the right move goes to the skinheads. Other than that, I don't I don't think I have too many experiences. I mean, someone once tried to like get me to go into an alley with him to fight like right around my apartment, but of of course I just said no and walked away. Sounds wise. I had a similar experience. I think it's my only, I don't know. I forgot everything that happened in Russia. It's in a box in my mind. But <laughs> the one thing that comes to mind is in a bar in Vladimir. It was like a beer pub kind of place and I saw an acquaintance who was like a 25-year-old woman, and I just was chatting with her. And then as soon as she went to the bathroom, this guy came up to me with like one of those terrible haircuts and got really close. And he was like, like, you got a problem? And I was like, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> who are you? And then he pulled a knife out immediately and like glared at me. And then my friend came up and was like, oh, don't worry. It's just, it's just my friends about him. Like, he's just that way. So that was a little alarming, but it's probably an everyday occurrence. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine a guy pulling a knife on you or anyone thinking that that you would be causing some kind of trouble in a bar anywhere. Did you have any encounters with the authorities or the police? I mean, I had 
plenty of encounters with the police, but it, it was honestly mostly they, they caught me jaywalking a lot. Uh, I had this just one intersection on my way to work that I would cross when the light was red because there were never any cars. And there was like a police post right there. So they would just walk out and look at me and kind of give you that look like, you can't do that. Like, you know, you can't do that. You know, I'm right here. But actually, I never I never got a fine because I always kind of just, I don't know, placated the whatever police officer was there. They would start talking to me, ask me for my passport. I would show them my American passport and they would look at me like I'm crazy. You know, like, oh, what are you doing here? They would all make some version of the same like American spy joke like, oh, what are you doing? And of course, you know, if you just you play along, you make them feel kind of good about themselves. And then they always let me go. I never once got a single fine, either because I don't know, they maybe didn't care that I was a foreigner, foreigner, they didn't want to fill out the paperwork. But for whatever reason, they always just let me go. You were living in St. Petersburg the whole time you were in Russia, but you must have traveled around some. How far east did you go? So when I lived there, just because of my work schedule, I didn't get to travel that much. So other than going to, to Frisbee tournaments here and there, yeah, when I lived there, I never made it further than Kazan. But actually, when I, when I finished my master's in 2019, I took six weeks and I took the, the train all the way from Moscow to Vladivostok, stopping in, in pretty much every major city along the way. So I have been all, all the way to the end. So what was the train like? Yeah, it was for me like a beautiful experience. I think if I were just doing it as a passenger normally, of course, it would be hot and sweaty and, and kind of boring because you're just stuck, right? You're stuck with your little like 1.75 meter long bunk with whatever two or one meter above you. But yeah, I think just watching the, the country go by and seeing the landscape change across the whole, I don't know, 11 time zones or whatever mainland Russia is, it's a, a really like beautiful experience to see. So it, it was wonderful to see. But it was also like the summer of 2019, there were lots and lots of wildfires in Siberia. So there was a certain section of the, the train, I think from, I don't know, all the way from Krasnoyarsk, basically to Khabarovsk where you would look outside the window and you wouldn't be able to see more than 10 or 15 meters just because everything was covered in smoke. Did you get to a point where you were like regretting the long train ride or no? No, I mean, I, I would love to do it again. Uh, I think, you know, at some point I would love to, to actually do the whole six and a half days just on the train without stopping. I would have loved to do that on the way back, but I just didn't have enough time. Did you talk to your fellow passengers a lot? Did you guys like play card games or anything like that? Honestly, less than I would have expected. I did. I had a few experiences talking to people, but mostly people just just kept to themselves and and people wanted to sleep. There was much less drinking on the train than I expected there to be. There was much less just like talking to to random people or making friends. Speaking of card games, I want to mention for anyone who hasn't been to Russia or former Soviet countries, something I was really shocked by, which is how popular board games are. Everybody always wants to pull out board games. It felt like a little bit of a throwback. Did you have that? Did you have a lot of friends that would go for like six hours playing board games? Yeah, uh, that also really shocked me to show up and, you know, ask people, oh, what are you doing this weekend? What are you up to tonight? Try to make plans. And they would say something like, I'm going to play board games, which I just, I don't think I've ever done that in the US. I don't think I've ever had a, a night with my friends where I've ever said like, oh, let's just play board games. And now, okay, I can do it. I've done it plenty of times in, in Riga and in St. Petersburg. 
but yeah, that was really shocking to me to understand the culture around just sitting there and playing board games for that long. Yeah, it's it's kind of nice. I guess I can get behind it, but I don't I don't usually have the stamina that my Russian friends seem to have for board games. No, and I think almost all of my Russian friends have a collection of board games that that would make mine look embarrassing. I think I have two board games at home or something like that. And most of my friends had six or seven just like really big, intricate games that I've never even heard of. Something I placed in the same category as board games that I was shocked by the prevalence of was ketchup. I don't know if you had this experience, Ned, but I guess it's in the same category as mayonnaise, where maybe we eat a lot of it in the US, but it's very uncool and you kind of have to like gag if you talk about it. But when I lived with a Russian host family um, for like four or five months, very often they would serve me like spaghetti noodles with ketchup or, you know, anything with ketchup, buckwheat with ketchup, which I learned to like, like it's fine. I don't mind it, but it was something new to me. Oh, I think I still mind. Going into a, a Russian supermarket and realizing that there's an aisle that's basically just half ketchup or 10 different flavors of ketchup, 10 different kinds of ketchup. That was really, I don't know, that was that was a huge culture shock for me. The same with mayonnaise, to understand that almost every salad you see in a, in a stolovaya or some kind of cafe is going to be covered in mayonnaise. Yeah, people like to marvel at the amount of different kinds of sugary cereal in American supermarkets. But I think there's the same phenomenon in Russia with ketchup and mayonnaise and a few other products that don't necessarily seem Russian when you when you think about them in the West. Or something that probably anyone who's traveled to Russia or Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania is familiar with is the prevalence of of dill, which is a you know an herb that in the US I'd never really given much thought to. I knew it existed. I've had it a few times, but it, it really caught me off guard to to go to Russia and see that they put it on on literally everything. I think once I even went to an Italian restaurant and they topped my spaghetti with dill, which I was just not not prepared for. Do you have any distinct holiday memories of any of these new-ish Russian holidays or inherited Soviet holidays? Yeah, I have I have two that come to mind actually. Once when I was studying abroad was the VDV day or the paratroopers day which takes place in, in early August. And anyone who's been to Russia on this day will know that it consists of paratroopers getting extremely drunk and swimming in fountains and honestly trying to fight people. And my, my first experience in St. Petersburg, I had, I'd never heard of this holiday. I didn't know that it was happening. No one told me. And my, my friend and I, who is also American, were just sitting somewhere near the Hermitage and just kind of having a picnic on the grass, eating some, I don't know, pies or whatever. And, and this guy came up to us because he heard us speaking English and he was wearing the, the classic like blue white striped tank top. And he was like really visibly drunk. And he said something to us like, oh, foreigners or whatever. And we said, yeah, okay, hi. And then he asked us what we thought about MH17, which is the, the plane that was shot down over Ukraine. And we said, oh yeah, like it's it's horrible. You know, we, we weren't trying to enter into some kind of political discussion. We kind of just wanted to brush the guy off. And he just kind of kept going on about it. And his theory was that it was actually NATO that shot down this plane because Vladimir Putin's plane was allegedly in the sky near this area at the same time. 
and the NATO troops were too stupid to actually shoot Putin's plane down, so they accidentally shot this passenger plane down, which is a conspiracy theory that I'd never heard before. So we just kind of looked at him like, oh, wow, okay, that's interesting, you know, great. If you've forgotten the details of the crash of Malaysian Airlines flight MH17, here's a quick refresher. In the summer of 2014, a Boeing 777 was on its way from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur when it was shot down over Ukraine's Donbass region, where Russian-backed forces were fighting the Ukrainian army. In the fall of 2022, a Dutch court convicted two Russian citizens and one Ukrainian citizen of downing the plane and murdering 298 people on board. A fourth defendant in the case, another Russian citizen, was acquitted for lack of sufficient evidence. He was represented by his lawyer in court while the others were tried in absentia. All four men had military leadership roles in the government of the Russian-backed, self-proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic at the time of the crash. The three who were found guilty were sentenced to life in prison in order to pay more than 16 million euros in compensation to the victims' families. Russia denies its involvement in the crash and has insisted the Dutch court's ruling was politically motivated. My other holiday memory was not a Russian holiday. It was Western Christmas in 2016. Because, you know, I had to work. I think it was, I don't know, a random weekday. But I just had my my friends came over after work, my Russian friends. And we, we watched It's a Wonderful Life. And we ordered pizza and we drank eggnog. Because they just wanted to try to give me some kind of more like traditional Christmas as I was working and missing being in a, in a regular Western Christmas scenario. That's really sweet. I'm glad that you have like a nice positive memory among all of these exoticizing stories of Russia. And what about you? The main holiday memories that come to mind, the, the first one is when I first got to Vladimir. And it was like the second or third day that I was staying with my host family. And like the activity we did for the evening was that the, the mom wanted me to watch on her laptop a long, long, long slideshow that she'd made for Day of Solidarity in the Fight Against Terrorism, which I think is like a more political holiday. Like I don't think people usually are celebrating that one. So yeah, we, we sat there and I watched it. I guess it was a good language lesson, but I was sort of surprised that people observe these holidays. I think she was a teacher. She made it for her students, but she was very serious about wanting me to watch her presentation. For context, in 2005, Russia established an annual Day of Solidarity in the fight against terrorism on September 3rd to commemorate the victims of the 2004 Bislan school siege when terrorists occupied a school in North Ossetia and took more than a thousand people hostage, including children, their parents, and school employees, for two and a half days mining the building. It was one of the worst terrorist attacks in Russian history. By the end of the siege, 333 people had been killed and 783 people were injured. And then at the school where I worked, every year we would have like a joint men's day, women's day. Men's day is like Defenders of the Fatherland Day in February. And then Women's Day is International Women's Day in March. So the, all the teachers at the school would always go to like sort of a kitschy restaurant called Adam and Eve. And we would like dress up. It was like sort of a wedding type of vibe. There was a DJ. It was kind of fancy at the same time, but everyone would drink quite a lot and dance. So that was always fun and a little absurd. It really leaned into the gender thing as Russia does. Ned, what friends do you remember in Russia? You know, who were your friends in Russia? Who was your first friend in Russia? What, what people stick out when you think about your time in Russia? A lot of people stick out. Of course, I, I still have lots and lots of friends, lots and lots of acquaintances. I'm probably, at this point, maybe 40% or more have, have left to either Turkey or Georgia or somewhere else. But yeah, actually, if we talk about my, my first friend in Russia, I guess we are still 
kind of friends. Obviously not not as good friends as we used to be, but we're definitely still friends. And actually, I met her randomly at a club on Dumskaya Street, which is, you know, if you know anything about St. Petersburg, the most notorious trashy bar and club street. I was just there with one of my friends and and we started talking to a group of of people and I ended up really really hitting hitting it off with a couple of them and and one of them is yeah still my friend to this day. She was actually in Berlin a few months ago so it you know we still get to see each other and catch up every once in a while. What about you? I think most of my friends when I was in Vladimir were my students because I spent all my time at work teaching and it sort of encompassed every age group from like 12 to some quite old people sometimes. So, I don't really want to talk specifically about any individual, but the people that I have like the fondest memories of, I think are the precocious teenagers who it's it's not that their their lives were like heavily censored or something or that they were like dying to get out of Russia, but I think there were more people than I would have expected who could like sense that they would have more opportunities to be creative or something outside of Russia, so they would like really devote themselves to their English classes. They had like a wide range of interests and would kind of guess that these American teachers were going to have something in common with them or like understand these western things they were interested in. I had one really close friend who was one of my like top, you know, five friends in Russia. I think she's in her 30s and we would like go to each other's houses and like hang out, had parties and stuff like that. And she was always sort of, you know, arguing. She she had some kind of edgy opinions that I didn't take very seriously. I thought she was doing like an edge lord thing, which I think she was. But in retrospect, I shouldn't be surprised about what happened later after the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. I started just sharing news on Instagram about it, maybe naively hoping that my Russian friends would see it and like learn something that they weren't getting otherwise from other sources. And this friend commented on something that I shared and she said, like verbatim her comment was specifically you are a hypocrite and a coward and just try to come back to Russia and see what happens. I think that might be the reason that I haven't spoken very much to any of my Russian friends since the full scale war started because if anybody else would say something like that then I kind of don't want to know and I think probably better not to have those kinds of interactions. So that was, you know, disappointing and sort of revealing. Yeah, I mean I definitely had similar experiences on February 24th and 25th posting, you know, news or or whatever just about this in general both towards my my Russian followers and friends and towards my English speaking followers and friends where I don't know probably one one in 10 of the the Russians that I know or that follow me on Instagram would start an argument or make some kind of really aggressive comments about how there are Nazis in Ukraine and you know just kind of parroting all of the talking points so I probably ended up having to to delete or block maybe 1 in 10 of my russian followers just because they really really aggressively said something to me yeah it's a bummer are there any stereotypes or clichés about russia that you remember believing before you were surprised when they turned out not to be true or that were proven true when you went to russia what stereotypes come to mind i mean the first stereotype of course is is vodka drinking and while there is plenty of that of course i think i found it maybe not shocking but i found it rather interesting in in st petersburg that almost none of my friends would drink vodka by choice and either they would if they were peer pressured into it they would drink it if they were at a dinner and there was some toast and they were handed a glass of vodka of course most of them would be fine with it but none of them would would choose to order it in a bar or buy it for a house party or something like that i think that 
it was much more common for people to drink wine or, or whatever, which I think is obviously quite normal if we're talking about young people all across the, the West and Europe and whatever. But I was also surprised at just how many people in my circle of friends and acquaintances just didn't drink at all. And it, it seemed like people were making some kind of active effort to fight against like Russian stereotypes and not for the benefit of of me, not for the benefit of people outside of Russia, but just to kind of consciously fight what it means to be this stereotypical Russian person. I wonder if it was not even just stereotypes, but I feel like alcoholism is more visible in Russia. And if you encounter it a lot and see it a lot, you just don't want that for yourself. If people have like family members or something that have problems with alcohol, maybe people just decide for their health or for their, you know, general success in their life that it's better not to touch it. Absolutely. Another Russian stereotype, or we can call it a stereotype, would be the idea of the kind of closed and an angry person, maybe, or at least, you know, people putting on their Russian face on the street of being very straight faced and looking kind of intimidating, like, hey, don't mess with me. Um, but then actually, if you started to talk to a complete stranger, it would be in the beginning, like really shocking to me how quickly people would would open up and within five minutes of, of meeting someone and talking to them, they would be telling you their entire life story and just really, really opening up, right? This idea that if you ask in Russia, how are you? Someone is going to give you a complete and real answer and you shouldn't actually ask that question as a pleasantry. You should only ask that question if you're really interested in knowing. And of course, as an American, right? Like that's my go-to question, how are you? But if you answer something other than fine, right? In the beginning, that would make me super uncomfortable, right? Like a lot of my friends would say to me, oh, I'm horrible. And then they would tell me why they were horrible. And in general, like I wasn't prepared for that kind of answer. So it took me quite a while to get used to. That reminded me of when I was taking a train once back from Moscow to Vladimir and I had a cough and I was kind of mortified because it was like kind of cough where you can't stop coughing. I thought they were going to kick me off of the train because everybody was looking very, you know, Russian expression. <laughs> and then this couple asked if I was sick, asked where I was from. I guess I was coughing with an accent. And they pulled out like a bottle of pills that they said were definitely the pills I should be taking. And like the biggest jar of honey I've ever seen. And they were like, just take this and just eat this honey until it's gone. It was so big, they must have been bringing it as a gift or as like a lifetime supply to somebody, but they just handed it over because they were generous. So I had a lot of experiences like that. Yeah, I mean, I think the generosity stands out for sure. How, how many people were willing to give you whatever if you just looked like you needed a little bit of help or even if you didn't look like you needed a little bit of help just as a, as a sign of friendship or hospitality. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.